gender equality in the workplace starts at the top. Despite living in an area of rapid technological advancements, groundbreaking discoveries and instantaneous global communications, the World Economic Forum predicts that it will take 132 years to close the global gender parity gap. This stark assessment underscores the need for boards and organizational leadership alike to focus on implementing policies and cultivating organization cultures that enable women to thrive. Deloitte's Women at Work, a global outlook report, now in its third year, looks at the views and insights of the world's working women. The report paints a deeply concerning picture. Despite some improvements, an overwhelming number of women are experiencing burnout, challenges with hybrid working, and non-inclusive behaviors in the workplace. Stigma around mental health persists, and women are struggling to balance mountaining domestic loads and increased pressure to be always on at work, while many are also facing challenges with their personal health and worries about their futures. As organizations around the globe seek to attract and retain talent, there still remains a critical need to dismantle age-old societal and cultural barriers, challenge biases and fork a new path forward towards a more inclusive, equitable future. As board members, it is vital to understand these challenges and ensure there are strategies in place to ensure your organization cultivates an environment where its most valuable assets, its people, can succeed. I'm delighted to talk with Emma Cord. Emma is Deloitte's Global Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Leader about the Women at Work report and what it means for board members, leadership and anyone working to drive change and achieve true gender equity in the workplace. Welcome to the Better Boards podcast series. I'm Dr. Sabine Demkowski, founder and managing partner of Better Boards. We make the boards of the most ambitious organizations more effective. Our mission at Better Boards is to contribute to creating better boards. We do this by providing clients with an evidence-based approach for board evaluations and board development programs. We have an innovative digital platform our clients can access and use as part of a fully facilitated external or for the internal evaluations. To fulfill our mission, we give a voice to all who care about creating better boards. Emma, thank you so much for contributing to the Better Boards podcast series. Thank you. It's great to be here. You have done a big, big piece of research and work on women at work a really important report and we want to make this report the basis of our discussion today. Why should boards really care about this report? Oh, um, gosh, great question, Sabine. So this report is in its third year now, the, and we'll talk about the findings during, you know, during our, our discussion. But why should boards care? Well, boards should care because in many countries around the world, there are either targets or quotas when it comes to the representation of women on boards. Yep. Now, we all know there's data out there that talks about, you know, diverse businesses perform better, and the reality is that they do. But when you look at the targets that are there, to make those targets, you need to attract and retain women. Obviously, you can bring women in at a more senior level, but ideally what you want to be doing is talent that starts you know within your business at, at lower levels and makes it way up what makes its way up through the business so women basically you attract and women that want to stay within your business now some of the findings 
of this research, you know, show that actually that's tough. That's really difficult. And this research you know, is representative. It's across 10 countries and it's 5,000 women. I would add that it's women outside Deloitte. So we did not poll our own women as part of this. We do lots and lots of surveys of our own women. This was women within the workplace across 10 countries. It's a globally representative view. And the findings are deeply concerning when it comes to actually the ability to attract, retain women. And then finally, I would say, you know, we'll get on to this later, some of the findings around non-inclusive behaviours. This is a governance issue. This, you mm. have women that are reporting, you know, four in 10 women reporting that they are experiencing non-inclusive behaviours in a work context. And many of them actually aren't reporting them. Now, those behaviours include harassment. So from a board perspective, if I was a board member, I would want to know if that was going mm. on within my business. You know, said so that question, sort of why, why should boards care? For many reasons. And, you know, I hope what we're going to talk about, they will take note of. And, and I hope they can help to affect what is much needed change. Yeah, no, wholeheartedly agree. And I mean, yes, we made progress at board level in a lot of countries, but not really at the executive level. As you say, the root cause might be that women do not get through the ranks. Exactly. And that's the issue. What some of the data will talk about, you've got significant retention issues. You have women from a mental health perspective, you have significant concerns there. There are so many things. And the reality is, if your business is not retaining those women, your high performing women, then you are effectively going to end up, you are not going to meet those targets or quotas. And so to me, again, I totally agree with you, Sabine, it's the exec level that is so important. And as we know, that's the level now that, you know, the focus is moving to. And the reality yeah. is to get there, You have to want, you have to be an employer that women want to stay with. And the women we're surveying, many of them are saying, actually, I don't want to stay. I don't want to stay with my employer. So can we shed some light on some of the key findings of that report? Where have you seen progress? And where seem to things get even worse? So this is the third year that we've conducted this, as I said. I just want to highlight the countries as well, because I think it's important we know, you know yeah. where we're talking about. So 5,000 women in work, and that was Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, Germany, India, Japan, South Africa, the UK, and the US. Now, last year, we had some really sh very shocking, deeply concerning data around three particular areas, and they were burnout, non-inclusive behaviours. That was almost six in 10 women were experiencing non-inclusive behaviours. We also had some really concerning findings around hybrid working and the exclusion of uh, women feeling or being excluded whilst working in a hybrid way. You know, this is, as we know, this is the new way of working. And then women not having enough access to senior leaders. And we know that that access is so important, that sponsorship can make a big difference. So now in terms of movements against last year and you know where things have got better and have improved, actually they've improved around burnout, non-inclusive behaviours and around hybrid working. But I want to be really, really clear on this. They have improved from a really very poor position. So last year, around half the women that we polled told us they were burnt out. As I said, six mm -hmm. in 10 had experienced non-inclusive behaviours. And around six in 10 said they'd been excluded while working in a hybrid way. 
Now, this year, it's just under a third of women tell us they're burnt out. So it's actually 44% have encountered non-inclusive behaviours in the last 12 months in a workplace context. And then it's now 40% of those women who have been excluded whilst working in a hybrid way. So that is an improvement, but I don't, I hate using the word improvement because it feels wrong to be using it when the data that sits under that is still so concerning and is still so poor. But those were three areas. I do think last year was an inflection point. I think it was this moment in time for many of us were going back into the office. For many of us, actually including myself, we're trying to get our caring arrangements sorted out after the pandemic. For many of us, those caring arrangements have dropped away completely during the pandemic. And so I think we did see this moment where there was really significant, really significant levels of burnout. The non-inclusive behaviours, I really can't explain why that was so awful last year, but I can tell you it's really not good this year either. Can you Tell us a little bit more about what these non-inclusive behaviours are. How do they manifest themselves in the workplace? Yeah, so non-inclusive behaviours are basically either microaggressions or harassment. And so microaggressions, as you will know, it's, I think, probably the best definition of it is often unintended, seemingly small behaviours that exclude an individual. So now, now that is typically, you know, that can be jokes at someone else's expense. It can be comments about the way you identify. It be comments about choices you've made. And I myself in my career can think of multiple times that, you know, that I have experienced that. And, and often it is, I want to emphasize, it is often unintended. So somebody, you know, they make a comment and they are unaware of the impact that it has. But the challenge is, it may be unintended, but it is deeply the impact on the individual that is receiving those comments. And, and particularly when it happens, you know, over a period, is the impact is really significant. And then we've got harassment. And that's obviously, you know, ranges from sexual harassment, other types of harassment. Now, the non-inclusive behaviours for us this year, so as I said, you know, 44% of women, think about that. That's nearly half the women we polled. So nearly 2,500 women in the last year have experienced a form of behaviour, at least one form of behaviour in the workplace that is just unacceptable. And the way that that breaks down is actually the majority of those behaviours are microaggressions. So now that is either because people are just not educated, they don't understand, they don't realise the impact, or... It's that people, they fully understand the impact, but they just, they believe they can say these things. They can do these things. All I just wanted to add finally was, you know, this is really, really important that where you experience this sort of behavior, you feel able to talk about it to somebody. You feel able to report it in inverted commas, you know, to speak up to somebody. And we have seen more women reporting than last year, but it's still pretty poor. It's still less than half. So if you think about it, these women are encountering these behaviours and under half of them are actually reporting it to anybody. So what happens, the behaviour will continue and then women effectively will often make the choice to go, to move employers. We know that one in 10 of women in the last year moved their employer 
because they had experienced microaggressions or harassment. And the top reason for not reporting is that the women that we polled basically said they didn't feel that it, it would be seen as serious enough or that it was serious enough to actually warrant reporting. And that, that just has to stop. So what do you think boards and members of boards can do about this? Oh, what think, should they ask in the boardroom? So I think this is really, and it's a very difficult one because that data around women not reporting. So what you would normally do is, you, one of the things is you would ask, so your CHRO or your, you know, your chief diversity, equity and inclusion officer, who should be in front of the board fairly regularly and should be talking about what they're doing, what the business is doing. And one of the things that you would want to understand is how many reports of non-inclusive behavior are there. The challenge there, though, is that you don't know if there are a low number of reports. You don't know if that's because people simply aren't reporting. And so for me, it's better understanding how is listening happening? So is HR, is the, uh, the diversity and inclusion um, team, are they actively listening? Are they convening women and others in the minority to better understand the behaviors that they're encountering? And then it's looking at the reporting framework. So, you know, we know, we know from reading about things in the media when things go horribly wrong, it's often where people have gone to the media to report or they've gone onto social media because they feel that was the only option left to them. They tried reporting internally, or they've been too worried to report internally. So that reporting process and the reporting mechanisms are so important. And at Deloitte, in, when I was in my former UK role a few years ago, we actually introduced respect and inclusion advisors. So we had the HR route for reporting, but we established this other really important cohort of you know, senior individuals who were there for people that felt that they were encountering non-inclusive behaviors, they were there for them to go to. And that actually enabled people to speak up. So I think it's mm -hmm. getting that reporting right is really, really important. And then finally getting the behaviors right. So when you have, again, your CHRO or your diversity, equity, inclusion leader in front of you, which hopefully that is happening regularly, when they are talking to you, ask about education. And I don't mean education on conscious bias. I mean education when it comes to microaggressions. So do people understand what a microaggression is? Do they understand the impact it has on someone else? Do they understand mm. that it is simply not appropriate, regardless of how senior someone is? It's all of those things to make sure there is a plan in place. Because, Sabine, we all know what can happen if there isn't. We all mm. know how public Absolutely. this can go very quickly and we all know the impact that can have on an organization so to me this is something that's really important from a governance perspective that boards are actually really getting under the bonnet of this that they're really mm -hmm. spending time with the executive that has responsibility for it and really understanding what data means and actually how people are feeling very very good point i mean the report also focuses on women health issues mental health but also health challenges related to menstruation and menopause. Yeah. How are these things impacting women in the workplace and how are employers responding? What good practices have you seen? So they really are impacting women in the workplace. We So just very quickly from a mental health perspective. So mental health perspective, despite burnout, as I said, you know, the data last year was so high. 
despite that data coming down this year, it's still deeply concerning. So for over half of the women we polled, their mental health was a top concern. As I said earlier, around a third were burnt out. Over a third, the women that we polled basically said, look, my mental health, I would say it's either poor or very poor. You've got a large number. So again, over half say their stress is higher than a year ago. And the really worrying thing here is also that sort of term that we really became so familiar with during the pandemic, that, that term always on. And it, it was that, mm. that sort of feeling for so many of us, and myself included, I have to say, where I just felt like I couldn't switch off from work. And that data has got significantly worse from last year. So, mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's only a third of the women we polled said they feel as though they can switch off from work. Only a third. Now, so you then say, right, so for an organisation, that means the support that you're providing from the mental health for everybody, what this data is showing is that women really need to be able to access this support. And unfortunately, that is really poor. That's gone down significantly from last year. For example, only four in 10 women, they get adequate support at work for mental health. And then you've got just a quarter feel comfortable talking about mental health at work. That's significantly down. And again, just a quarter giving the real reason when they take time off for mental health. So these women saying this is a big issue for us. It's a top priority. We're really suffering from increased stress and anxiety. And where are they spending most of their time? They're spending most of their time in the workplace. And yet they don't feel able to access that support. So, you know, good practice. What can organisations do? Honestly, they can normalise the conversation about mental health. It's mm. making sure, and again, from a board perspective, it's making sure that the organisation has things, standard things now, like an employee advice uh, programme, They're often known as an EAP. And that's, you know, a programme, obviously often a phone number or a means to which people can connect with people that can give them some guidance and advice that sort of stuff is now really seen as standard within organizations i'm happy to say mm -hmm. but you know it's beyond that it's normalizing the conversation as i said and that honestly that means senior people standing up and saying actually i was burnt out and i do i mean during the pandemic i went through a period where i can tell you i was burnt out and the impact on me and on my family was immense and me mm -hmm. sharing that as a senior leader makes a real difference for people when they're sitting yeah. suffering in silence. So, you know, this is a significant issue. We know the younger generations, we know Generation Z and millennials, we know that half of them feel stressed or anxious all or most of the time. That's from different research we've conducted. You cannot afford, if you want to be an employer of choice, a successful business, this is something that can't be ignored. And then just on the women's health side of things. So, so we know this is deeply personal. You know, our health and women, our menstrual health is a deeply personal subjects to us, but they are issues for business to, you know, to be concerned about. There are things that we need to think about. So we asked women, do you suffer pain or symptoms from menstruation? And actually all from menopause and almost a quarter of the women we polled do. Okay, so just think about that. They are going through once a month or for women on menopause, you know, considerably more frequently than that. They are suffering from adverse symptoms associated, you know, what is a really normal part of life. And yet for so many women, they don't feel able to raise this or talk about it in the workplace. So the women that suffer from menstrual disorders, you know, 40% of them every month 
they have intense pain and symptoms and yet they sit and they work through it. They do not take time off. And for those that mm. do take time off, they don't talk to anyone. So if you think about it, for any people listening now, think about when you felt really ill, when you've been in real pain and think about having to go to work every day. And I was one of those women. I suffered from severe endometriosis. And I will tell you, I didn't. It took a long time for me to disclose it to anybody at work. Mm. And that why didn't I disclose it? Because actually most of my leaders around me were men. I felt very uncomfortable yeah. talking about periods to men around me. And I didn't want to be seen as weak. And I didn't want to be seen as somebody that could let the team down, even though I never let the team down. That is a real issue. There is a real stigma around this that we have got to break down. And interestingly, women are saying they want policies that recognize the impact of menstruation on so many women. Now, the same as menopause. So if you think about it from a menopause perspective, this is something that is something that affects us. It's going to happen. It's a part of life. It's a normal part of life. The stigma that has been in place, but the impact of menopause and symptoms on women now is extreme. Now, the data actually for menopause is better than for menstruation. So it's only one in five of the women we polled who are in menopause basically told us they didn't take time off. So actually, there's higher disclosure rates. Now, why is that? I think that's because we're talking about it more. There's more conversations in the workplace. And why is it so important for boards? And why is it so important for businesses? Mm -hmm. Because guess what? Unfortunately, for many women, it takes us longer to get to the top of a business. It takes us longer to get yep. onto that exco. It takes us longer to get onto that board. That's just the reality. And that's got to change. However, unfortunately, for many of us, it coincides with us hitting menopause. And the yes. symptoms of that are so debilitating for so many people. And so, again, it's just the ability to talk about this. Just talk about it, normalize it, make sure that people can access the help they need. Because I know that I want everyone in my organization to perform their best. Why wouldn't you? And that means, as a board, it means understanding the policies and processes you've got in place within the organization. And it means making sure that the conversation is normalized, that people that are suffering from these things are able, feel able to say they are and feel able to access support. And the data, unfortunately, tells us that's just not happening enough at the moment. So let's really zoom in on this because our listeners really love practical tips and insights. Again, what can board members do to make sure that these conversations are normalized, not yeah. only in the boardroom, but throughout the whole organization? Yeah. And I look, Sabine, I think this, I am a big fan of talking about things. There are two things. First of all, for the board members, it's understanding the process that, that are in place. Again, it's talking to your CHRO. It's talking to your DEI lead. I hope, by the way, that every organization has two separate roles doing that because they are fundamentally, they're linked to each other, but they're both fundamentally really important areas. So it's talking to them. It's understanding. Ask what policies you've got in place. Ask what data you've got. Ask what support is in place for people that, for example, are going through menopause. Ask whether the leaders, people leaders, are equipped to have conversations with people about that. So if someone comes 
to a leader, goes to their leader and says, look, I'm really struggling with the symptoms that I'm going through at the moment. That leader needs to be equipped. So basically, as a board member, it's asking, what is happening there? What are you doing? Again, what does the data show? But the other thing I would say is, it's also, there's a big part of this, as I said, is normalizing the conversation. It's exactly the same on mental health. It's talking about it. And for me, you know, as a senior woman within my business, I actually produced an article about a year ago, I think a few months ago, with Sharon Thorne, who was until very recently our global chair. And the two of us wrote an article about our experience with menopause. And it was really personal. You know, it was something that I will admit I thought, you know, I thought twice about before I did it. And then I thought, you know what? No, I am going to do this because my life has just been really impacted by this. And I want others to know. So you had a chair and a senior leader sharing their mm-hmm. experiences in an article. We have never had so many people in our organization and outside our organization reach out to us. Amazing. To talk about, to thank yeah. us. And including, by the way, people outside our organizations who basically were saying, I wish my organization had leaders that were also talking about this. So that's the other point yeah. for me. Be a role model. Talk about this. Normalize the conversation. You are the most senior leaders within an organization. And honestly, the impact of actually anyone that has lived experience, the same as with mental health, just talking about it, I can tell you the impact, a positive impact is significant. Emma, we said they have to come to an end. So what is the one thing that our listeners should take away from this podcast? Oh, gosh, I would say the one thing is it matters. This matters. As a board member, this is not something that's a a nice to have. This is a business imperative. I would say, look at the results, look at this data. It is really important. And one thing that's important is that within this data, we found a glimpse, a small number of women that work for companies that are getting it right. So your board members, my advice would be read, even if you only read the executive summary and the recommendations, read those because they are the insight. They will give you the insight that you need to make sure and to ask the questions that you need to ask within your organization and to make sure that you are able to make those targets and those quotas and you are able to be a successful business. Fantastic, Emma. Thank you so, so much for contributing to the Better Boss podcast series. It's a pleasure. Thank you. How can we help you and your board? We at Better Boards are always delighted to hear from you. If you would like to hear more about upcoming podcasts, our work, or would like to have access to a demo of our platform, get in touch. You can best reach us at info at better-boards.com. Thank you for listening.